Well, amen. We are looking today at what does it look like for us to have God's promises, God's Word, forever on our lips, devoured into our very soul. Last week, as we dove into Ezekiel, we got to see the entire story. So if you weren't with us last week, you can pick up the CD where we covered the first 13 chapters, sort of in character, describing what it felt like to be Ezekiel, wrestling with all these challenges. But before we dive into chapter 2 today, I want to give you a a sense of where we are in the Bible narrative. Because sometimes you get all these stories and it's hard to keep track of who's who and and where are we. So if you look at uh, this, clearly this summarizes a third of the Old Testament, right? So we are post-Moses, we're post-Joshua, we're post the book of Judges, and now we have King Saul, 1 Samuel, we have King David, 2 Samuel, and we have Solomon, 1 Kings. At the end of Solomon's reign, his kingdom is divided in half. And now things get a little weird because this nation that used to be called Israel has now got two parts. A northern kingdom that is now called Israel, which is composed of ten of the tribes. And now the southern part of Israel is known as Judah because Judah is the one tribe plus Benjamin that remain. So now we see that the northern kingdom It's pretty bad. They have 390 years of rebellion. That's why Ezekiel had to lay on his side for 390 days. The southern kingdom has a lot of better kings chasing after God, turning people back to God. And they have 40 years of rebellion, of which Ezekiel has to flip over and lay on his side for 40 years. Now, it's during this time that another empire known as the Assyrians come along, blue blob number one. Blue Blob takes over and they conquer the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom continues to reign free. However, many years later, Babylon comes along and Babylon not only conquers the southern kingdom, but also conquers Assyria, thus assimilating God's people back together. But when Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, overtakes the southern kingdom, it doesn't happen in one wave. Wave number one, he comes in and with malicious, horrific violence, kills meat hook, dragging people behind their chariots, kills off a third of half the people. Then he takes the cream of the crop, the best leaders, the smartest folks, the, the politicians, the military commanders. He takes all the young teenagers with the most potential and drags them or walks them, in this case, up to Babylon. And that's where Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, all those came in that first group. He comes and takes the second group, which probably include Ezekiel. And so Ezekiel is now living in Babylon, in a place called Tel Aviv, which was a Babylonian location, not an Israeli location. And so now, Ezekiel finds himself living in a culture that destroyed many of his family members, destroyed many people he knew, Anti his God, anti his values, and he wants to know, how do I live as a captive in the Babylonian Empire? And God's going to speak to him about how to be a visual aid to those captives in Babylon, and also how to speak back to those who are still living in Judah, and tell them, if you don't submit to God's consequence or punishment here, if you continue to to rebel against God through idolatry and continue to fight against the king of Babylon, the Babylon's going to come back in a third wave and actually destroy the temple itself, which is what does happen. So, in this message in Ezekiel, we discover how do we live 
in a Babylonian world? And two, how do we as people with hearts prone to rebellion realign ourselves to God? There's a parallel passage where the prophet Jeremiah is describing in a a quick one paragraph God's message to Ezekiel about how to live in Babylon. Here's what Jeremiah says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all of you who are carried away captive, whom I caused, I let this happen, I caused this to happen, this is punishment, I caused this to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. And what do you think he's going to say? Like, I'm reading it, Chet, I know. No, he's saying, huddle up, you're going to be home soon, huddle up, stay away from those evil Babylonians, stay away from those people who believe differently from you, those people who are not convinced about your God or your scriptures. No. Jeremiah says, you're going to be here for 70 years. So while you're in Babylon, I want you to build houses. You're here for the long haul. I want you to dwell in them. Make this your home, Babylon. I want you to plant gardens and I want you to eat their fruit. I want you to take wives to get sons and daughters. I want you to plan on living in Babylon for the long term. I want you to be my visual aid to the Babylonian culture as to what the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob look like. Take wives for your sons, give daughters to your husbands, so they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. And here's the mindset I want you to have living in a culture that is antagonistic toward your values. I want you to seek the peace of the city. Literally, the shalom. I want you to not huddle away and be isolated. I want you to integrate yourself into the Babylonian society. I want you to be civic leaders, community leaders, and I want you to put policies in place. I want you to put systems in place that show the values of God. Caring for the widow, caring for the poor, caring for the unborn. I want you to to dive in and find ways in which the, the, the policies are put in place, the peace of the city, that people say, well, I like having these Israelis here. They try and do what's best for all of us, whether you believe the way they do or whether you don't. They're seeking the peace of the city. Which city? The city of Babylon, where I caused you to be carried away captive. Oh my goodness, I'm seeking the peace of the city that took some of my friends captive, that killed some of my neighbors? Yes. Seek the shalom of the city. And pray to God for the peace of the city of Babylon. And when it's peaceful, you will have peace. And what he says is, I've put these captives in Babylon, Ezekiel, you're one of them, so that you can be a living visual aid to people who've never heard about me. You see, a Christian's life is the world's Bible. A Christian's life is the world's Bible. Many will never pick up a scroll, will never pick up the Bible. They're a long way off from ever touching the scriptures, but every day they are reading your translation. How humble you are, how compassionate you are, whether you care about yourself or for other people, whether you apologize, whether you complain. If we were to ask your grandkids, your son or daughter, your colleagues at work, the people in your community, what they were reading in your translation of your life, what might they say? Do we have grace and mercy? Do we own what we do? You see, a Christian's life is the world's Bible. And he says, Ezekiel, you captives, I want you to be a living visual aid to a group of people who've never read my scriptures as to what I'm like. He's going to tell them how to live a certain type of life, how to raise the flag to bring attention to the fact that they're followers of Jesus, or Jehovah in this case. And lastly, what does it mean to eat the scroll? And I think the reason he gives these clear instructions is because 
He wants all of us to know what our purpose is in a fallen world. And more than that, how do we integrate this life? How do we be effective in influencing the world for the God we love? He begins in Ezekiel chapter 2 saying, we need to live the life, the eternal life God's given us. We are God's visual aids to a broken world. And so God said to me, son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak to you. As you heard last week, this is God's absolute favorite phrase. Son of man, son of man. Literally means son of dirt, son of the dirt clod, dust mite. It's a very humbling term to say, hey, let's remember, if everything I'm going to call you to do, if it weren't for my spirit breathed into you, you would just be a big dirt clod. And that's why the message of Jesus, as we're living out our life, whatever areas of influence we have in the city, in the community, the thing that should resonate from a Christian is a deep sense of humility. Whatever we have, whatever we don't have, whatever influence we have or have gained, what should be striking about followers of God is that we have a deep sense of humility. We know at the end of the day we are just a son of man. Stand on your feet, I'll speak to you. Then the Spirit entered me. Now think about that. The Spirit of God who made all the universes, the Spirit of God who put your atoms and, and electrons and nucleuses, all those pieces, parts, and DNA, the DNA related and the genetic code related, that God dwells in you and I if we're followers of Jesus. Do you know the early Romans thought that Christians were atheists? Because they would talk to Christians and say, well, where's your temple? Oh, we don't have a temple. I am the temple. What? Well, who's your priest? Oh, I am a priest. I speak to God on behalf of the people, and I speak to the people on behalf of God. I'm a priest. Well, where do you do your sacrifices? I am a sacrifice. I'm a living sacrifice. What is wrong with these Christians? They're atheists. They think they're the temple. They think they're the priest. They think they're the sacrifice. And the reason we know this to be true is because the very Spirit of God, in the Old Testament, the Spirit would come and go. But in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in everyone who's a follower of Jesus. And so, as we live this life of God, one, we have deep, deep humility, knowing that our best days and our best works are like filthy rags compared to God. And so we walk with deep humility. On the other hand, God has exalted us. The very Spirit of God lives in you. Your value, your worth, your beauty, your respect comes from the one who made you and now lives in you. You are right now in Christ, a temple by which the Spirit lives. So living the life of Christ doesn't just mean humility. It means incredible confidence in the face of fear. Incredible sense of worth. It doesn't come from self-worth. It comes from God-worth. Are we living a life where people see that unique combination of deep humility and deep confidence? The Spirit entered me and He spoke to me and He he set me on my feet. And I heard Him who spoke to me and He says, Son of the dirt clod, i got some things to say. So when we live this life, one, we are deeply humbled as dust. Two, we are highly exalted as God lives in us. And God is with us. And He has adopted us. But part of living this life is that God sends us to be his visual aids to a rebellious culture and to a rebellious world. So he goes on to say, he says, we are sent. Ezekiel, I am sending you to the children of Israel. Like, well, that sounds good. Just keep waiting. 
I'm sending you to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. And they and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. They are impudent. They are stubborn. Hmm, this isn't sounding like such a good plan now, God. Maybe we should rethink this. Impudent, stubborn people? And isn't it amazing, if you're living in Babylon as a Christian, you're thinking to yourself, oh my goodness, let's just have a holy huddle and pray for the Messiah to come. God said, no, no, no. I want you to go to rebellious people. I'm sending you to rebellious people. I want you to go back to the, to the followers still in Judah who are rebelling against me. And I want you to go to them and woo them and warn them and, and, and draw them back to me. What kind of a visual aid are you? What kind of a visual aid am I? If, if the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom could be so wayward... How stubborn is your heart these days? How stubborn are you when somebody brings feedback to you that maybe you don't like? Your spouse? Oh, that's stupid. A boss? Your kids mention some idiosyncrasy you have. Do you get defensive? You see, we have a tendency to say, oh, stubbornness. Yeah, my family's always been stubborn. I've always been stubborn. Yeah, just sort of, it, it is what it is. But God put stubbornness and pride at the top of his list of serious, serious problems. What if instead of us saying, ah, stubbornness, I've always dealt with it, stubbornness, it's always been an issue. What if we began to repent of our stubbornness, repent of our brokenness, repent of the ways in which we're not open to God putting his finger and changing and modifying some things in our heart? What if we took stubbornness and rebelliousness very seriously and said, God, soften my heart towards you? And what if when we have rebellious kids... We're not surprised by it. Oh my goodness, sin or sin. What if we have rebellious neighbors who don't agree the way we do? And instead of feeling like we're going to demonize or we're going to judge, what if we said, God, you're sending me to be your light. You're sending me to your visual aid about what a marriage could look like, what a family should look like, what compassion and service looks like in this community, in this job, at this time, in this place. We live the life. Ezekiel, I want you to live the life too. I want you to raise the flag. I want you to raise the flag. There's going to be a time as you're interacting with the Babylonians, you need to raise the flag and let them know that you're a follower of me. They're going to say, wow, I love his compassion. I love his resolve. I love how, how courageous he is. But there's going to be a time that you need to raise the flag and say, it's not just that I'm a nice guy. It's not just that I'm a kind guy. It's that I do this because of my God. And as you build relationships with people, as you interact with folks and they begin to see things in your life, there's going to come a time that you raise the flag and, and bring to their attention that you follow God or follow Jesus. And I love this point here because what, what he's going to tell Ezekiel is that you and I are responsible for our resolve, not the results. That is so freeing. I remember I was 17, we went on a mission trip. So we traveled around Europe for two months together and we got a chance to share the gospel in multiple languages and one of the definitions they had us memorize was this. Successful sharing or successful witnessing is taking the initiative, and i got to take the initiative, to share Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, okay, because he's the one that changes hearts, and leaving the results up to God. Am I taking the initiative to share Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, 
which means the Holy Spirit's not working. It may not be time to raise the flag and, and bring up a spiritual conversation yet. But as the Holy Spirit leads to share Jesus Christ, and leave the results up to God. And here's exactly what he says to Ezekiel. We are responsible for our resolve, not the results. Listen, Ezekiel, whether they listen to you or not, whether they listen or fail to listen, they're rebellious people. But they will know that a prophet has been among them. So there's going to be a time you need to raise your flag and say, I'm speaking on behalf of God. They need to know there's a prophet among them, even though they're not going to listen. Now, can you imagine this job description? Hey, it's great to have you at the job interview. Um, you're going to need to work with us for about 70 years is the contract I want you to sign. And just know that after 70 years of, of, of putting your best effort and your best work into this, you will have no results at all from your career. Who signs up for that? Ezekiel does. He says, God, you're not calling me to be responsible for my results or how people respond but to be obedient. He goes on. He says, no, it's going to be tough. Son of man, don't be afraid of them because they're rebellious. Nor be afraid of their words because they're going to say some mean things about you. They're, they're going to accuse you of some things. Though briars and thorns are with you, though you dwell among scorpions, do not be afraid of their words. Do not be dismayed by their looks. Oh, here comes Ezekiel again. Oh, my goodness. Though they are, because though they are a rebellious house, but you shall, despite that, speak my words to them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are rebellious. There it is again. But you, son of dust, hear what I say to you. And look at this. Do not be rebellious like them. You know, one of the hardest things in trying to draw friends toward Jesus is that they have met other Christians. Right? And so, before you get a chance to explain your faith, you're having to explain all the bad examples, all the bad visual aids they've seen on TV, they've heard on radio, it's that old pastor, it's that priest. Everyone's got a sad story. And, and what God is commanding Ezekiel is don't be like the visual aids in Judah and Israel. Don't be rebellious like them. Live a, such a compelling life of integrity that it draws people to your God. It draws people to your life. Which is why as a church we talk about walking with people, walking with your friends, building friendships with folks. And there's a, there's a process for that. Number one, you build friendships or build relationships with people unconvinced about God or Jesus in the Bible. They're not projects, they're friends. And as you build a genuine friendship, there will come a time that you just live in the life. You just live in this life of Christ. And pretty soon, as people notice something about how you live, they say, you apologized to your wife last night, you said? Like you own that? Now, I noticed how firm you came down on your son, but you also did it with kindness. You were firm and kind. How do you mix those two together? And in those conversations, you raise the flag. And you think, this might be the moment for me to say, well, actually, it's not me. It's some wisdom I've gotten actually the Bible about how to balance both mercy and truth. The Bible can be relevant, and you're into a spiritual conversation. And then you raise the flag. There comes a time in building that friendship that you raise the flag and let people know that you're a follower. I remember a friend of mine, he was a, uh, in the oil industry in the Shetland Islands in, Shet in Scotland. And he uh, moved to the States down in Atlanta. And God was compelling him to c move out of business to go into the ministry. And so he was building friendships with neighbors. And one of his neighbors uh, moved in from up north of Chicago area. 
and was a realtor. So they brought him over some brownies, welcome to the neighborhood, let's do some dinner next week. They have dinner. They're just having a great friendship. Two months go by, great friendship. Hey, real estate market, how's it going? Things are going great in Atlanta. Three months go by, more friendship. The wives are connecting, the husbands are connecting. Six months go by, they have them over for dinner again. And while they're at dinner, my friend Peter turns to uh, this real, realtor guy and he says, so tell me, how's, uh, how's business going? How, how do you feel about Atlanta? Oh, I love Atlanta. Man, love Atlanta. Love the weather. I love the prospects. I love the career opportunities. The only thing I don't like about Atlanta is all the born-againers. Just all these born-againers talking about going to church and all these rules and blah, 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 blah. To which my friend Peter says, I know exactly what you're talking about. So the religiosity and the judgment and the self-righteousness drives me crazy too. And at that point, for whatever reason, they hadn't talked about this. It's hard to imagine. He says, by the way, I never asked you, Peter, what do you do for a living? And Peter felt like with a winsome response, this was the moment to raise the flag. He he smiled and he says, well, I pastor one of those born-again churches. (laughs) No way! He said, no, seriously, I I am a pastor. But honestly, I know exactly what you're talking about. Christians can be weird. They can be self-righteous. And honestly, I was a skeptic for 34, 30, 40 years. And I thought Christians had been lobotomized. I thought they didn't think or engage their brain. And for the first time, I read a book by C.S. Lewis. And I didn't believe him, but I thought, finally, a thinking person of faith. And that began a journey for me. He was like, you can't be a Christian. You're not weird. And see what happened there? Because of six months of building relationship, he earned the right to raise the flag. Many times I'll be on an airplane and folks say, hey, what do you do for a living? I could easily say I'm a pastor, but when I say I'm a pastor, here's what happens. I'm a pastor. Oh my goodness, what did I say last time, Mads? What dirty jokes did I just tell? Or it's, um, a pastor, huh? I've got a sister who's got a cat who has a, another cat she likes who has a master who once went to church. Uh-huh. So often people say, what do you do for a living? Well, I'm a, a professional communicator and I get an opportunity to work with a creative teams to put together environments every weekend to help folks improve their marriages or find a greater vision or a purpose for their life or improve their families. Wow, that sounds fascinating. And I think of how Paul purposely was a tent maker and an apostle. So he could use his leverage as a tent maker with people in business to, to draw people in. In fact, I can imagine a conversation with Paul. Hey, Paul, uh, what got you into the tent making business? Well, my father, actually, my grandfather used to make all the tents for the army uh, for Mark Anthony. And because of that, he was gifted a Roman citizenship. And thank goodness I was apprenticed in that business. So now I was born a Roman citizen because my father and grandfather worked with the Roman government on providing all the tents for the army. And Mark Anthony was a personal friend of my grandfather. Really? Suddenly you're having a whole different conversation than I'm an apostle. It doesn't mean you're deceptive, but it does mean that we want to earn the right to have people see how we're living our life before we raise the flag. Third thing he tells them, I want you to live this life. I want you to raise the flag, but I also want you to be a person who's eaten the scroll. We digest what God tells us before we tell others. My life verse is Ezra 7.10. Ezra purposed in his heart to study the statutes of God, to do it, and then teach them to Israel. Often as a teacher, I want to study and then teach. But God says, no, no, no. There's a stage in the middle. You study, you do it. You put it into practice, into your life, into your emotions, into your will, into your career, into your finances. You do it. Then you go and invite other people into it. 
So God turns in Ezekiel 2.8 and he says, open your mouth, Ezekiel. Eat what I give you. And when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me. As we saw last week, a hand comes down and hands him this scroll. It was so interesting, Ezekiel notes about this scroll. He spread it out before me. So he unrolled it. And it was written on both the inside and the outside, which was very unheard of. Usually it would just be written on the inside. And he looked on it and there were lamentations and mourning and woe of what would happen if the people continued to rebel against God. And God turns to him and says, I want you to eat the scroll, Ezekiel. Eat it. And so last week you saw me eat it, right? And he ate it. He devoured it. As Natalie told us earlier, the word meditate in Joshua chapter 1-8 means Hagah. To devour, to tear into the word, to know the word in the same way that a lion tears into prey. We eat it. And some of you after the service last week said, Chad, I'm worried about you. You shouldn't probably be eating paper and Sharpie. Thank goodness it's rice paper and food coloring. But I'm okay, I'm okay. But I appreciate you guys thinking of me. What does it mean to devour, to take God's word into us? Well, that's what he says here. He says, you need to know it. You need to experience it. This needs to be real to you. You're not just delivering beliefs and dogma. You're delivering a living message that's in you of grace, of mercy. He goes on. Moreover, he said to me, son of man. There's that humility again. Dirt clod. Eat what you find. Eat the scroll. Then you go. Before you go, before you share, you eat, you devour, you take these words into you. And then you can speak to the house of Israel. So I follow that pattern. I opened my mouth and he caused me to eat the scroll. But I don't know what that means. I don't know if that's like, okay. Uh. I mean, I don't know what it means for God to cause him to eat. But God is in the process of putting his word into him. And he said to him, Son of lint, son of dirt, feed your belly. Take this deep into your soul. Fill your stomach with the scroll I give you. And he's so shocked and surprised that it's not bitter. It doesn't taste like wood or like animal skin, which would have been written on. It was sweet like honey. There's an old uh, rabbinic technique that whenever a rabbi brings new students in to study the Torah, he'll take a piece of wax paper out and he'll place it on top of their Bible. He'll say, what does God's word taste like? Pull out the wax paper. Everybody sets their Bible down. He pulls out some honey. And he comes around. And he puts a little drip on the wax paper. Or a big drip for this matter. And he asks all the kids to dip into, to touch the honey. Say, this is what God's word tastes like. It is sweet like honey. It is life-giving. It is refreshing. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that his words are sweet. So you came in today, I gave you a, a lifesaver, a Worcester here. Let's pop that in our mouth. So you're saying, thank goodness it's been sitting there. I've, been, I've had so much self-control. It's been like 35 minutes and oh my goodness. So let's just taste that together. As you're sort of rolling around your mouth. This is what forgiveness tastes like. In a world that's tempted to hold grudges, to demand your rights, to be unforgiving and bitter, God says, taste and see 
The power of forgiveness. It's sweet. This is what apologizing tastes like. You grew up in a family that nobody ever apologized. Nobody ever owned their issues. Everybody was just defensive. Worse than that, you saw your parents, the one time they did apologize, the other spouse held it against them for 30 years. You said you were wrong. I remember 20 years ago. And so you decided that forgiveness was not sweet. That forgiveness was bitter. And God says, I want you to trust me. Taste again. The taste of sweetness, of freedom, of owning, of apologizing. It's the taste of being thankful in a world that's so cynical. It's the taste of hope. That though you're in a bitter time of 70 years of Babylonian exile, there's hope. There's sweetness that God can work through everything you're going through right now. And you're saying, oh my goodness, I can't believe this didn't happen or this did happen. And God says, taste. Taste my promises. You're reading in Joshua, I am with you. God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. You're reading the promise of God that if you will turn back to me, I will restore you. Taste and see, he says. The sweetness of my word. And it tasted like honey. What if we came to God's word, not with a sense of, oh my goodness, I've got to do this, I'm supposed to do this, but a sweetness of, God, I need the sweetness of your promises because I'm living in a world that feels a lot like Babylon. I need the sweetness of your hope, the sweetness of your peace flowing in and through me. That's what God is calling us to, to have that kind of sweetness in our life. Then he goes back and he reiterates all three points. Live the life Raise the flag and eat the scroll. One more time in the next verse. Verse 4, he says, Then he said to me, Son of man, there's a humility, go to the rebellious people, the house of Israel. Speak with my words. There's the raise the flag. You're not just speaking your words. You're speaking my words. You're raising the flag saying, these are words coming from God. This is the hope that comes not from me, but from another source. And you speak it to them. For you are not sent to a people of unfamiliar speech. These are people who know your language. These are, this won't be a hard language for you to translate. You're going to the house of Israel. Not to many people of unfamiliar speech, of hard language, of, of words you don't understand. You're going to be a missionary communicating my message to your neighbors and friends. And this is why this is so important. When I tell people I'm a pastor, they go, oh, you're paid to say this kind of stuff. I'm immediately dismissed. But you are living in communities and neighbors and jobs that when you begin to talk about your faith, when you begin to live a life that's authentic and attractive, you have instant credibility. Why? Because people know you. You're of the same language. You're of the same community. Man, I never thought I could see what integrity looked like in that situation. You immediately have integrity because people know you. You're real. You're not one of those paid priests or paid pastors. Your ability to be effective in influencing folks to people of your own language is far better than any missionary, any pastor ever, because people know you, and they're going to know if it's real. He goes on, he says, now, you know what? Had I sent you to people of a different language, had I sent you to the Assyrians or the Babylonians, they would have repented. But I'm sending you to your people, and they are stubborn people, and they're not going to listen to you. But don't take that personally. They don't listen to me either. You're not responsible for the results. Just the resolve to take the initiative. For all the house of Israel. I am impudent. They're hard-hearted. 
But I'm going to make your face strong against their faces. Your forehead strong against their foreheads. Like adamant stone, harder than flint, I have made your forehead. I want you to have one thing about your life. Strong, fearless convictions. Humble, compassionate, but strong, fearless convictions. And that is going to strike people to go, everybody else caves. I cannot believe you didn't cave in that situation. I can't believe you chose to, to do into that fearful situation and still hold your integrity and still do what was right. It's going to be striking in our world. Which brings up, a, I think, a helpful metaphor I came across years ago. This idea that we receive God's word into us. Look how he again reiterates, eat the scroll here. Don't be afraid of them. Don't be dismayed at their looks. They are a rebellious house. Moreover, he said to them, son of man, receive into your heart. Eat my scroll. Eat my promises. And have them go deep, deep into your heart, into your belly. All of my words that I speak to you. Hear with your ears. Go get to the captives. Tell the children of your people. Speak to them and tell them, thus says the Lord God. Whether they hear or whether they refuse. You're not responsible for results. Just your resolve. Years ago, I came across an illustration that was helpful for me. It describes that many times, as we're trying to lead people to the challenge of who Jesus is and their own brokenness, before they get to what they call the cross chasm, when you go, oh my goodness, I do have a stubborn heart. I, I am hard-hearted. Many people never get to the place to hear the challenges of the Bible because before the cross chasm, they come to what I call the cultural chasm. And they, they come across religious people and they go, why do all religious people talk weird? Like who comes up to another person and says, hi brother, good to see you. That's strange. Listen, I, I don't think whatever that is, I want it because I don't want to talk that way or I don't want to be inauthentic or I don't want to be duplicitous or I don't want to be, have to, you know, quote the Ten Commandments at, at, at you know, any particular time. Or the cultural chasm is in order to be a Christian, you have to be a Democrat or to be a Christian, you have to be a Republican or to be a Christian, you have to have your hair a certain way or, or you can't play cards or all this other stuff that becomes a chasm. And long before people get to reject Jesus, long before they get to the chasm saying, do I really have a broken heart and God needs to forgive me? Nobody gets to even reject the cross because they're rejecting the caricatures of the cross. And so we want to work really, 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 really hard to be normal. So that people in our normalness don't have to jump don't reject the cultural chasm, but instead they come face to face with the cross chasm. They say, wow, there's something real here. And then we can bring to the offensive message of Jesus. Man, I just know. I don't know if you're selfish, but I know I am. I know it plays out in my marriage. I know it plays out with my kids. I know I need forgiveness for it. And I know I need somebody to lead my life. Now, you still have convictions about politics. You have convictions about issues. You, you don't have to get rid of any of those convictions. But they don't become the main thing. They don't become... The chasm by which people reject. If you want to call each other brother and sister, it's not my thing. I, that's fine. But that it comes across as unfamiliar language to those who are not yet convinced of the message of Jesus. Now, if you saw this week, uh, Steel Johnson was one of our divers, and he and his uh, buddy dove and they got the silver medal. And as they were interviewed, they said, now, "How did you do it? How were you able to to win the silver?" And they decided to raise the flag. They said, "I'll tell you why. We we're followers of Jesus." And our identity is not in winning the silver that we want to win. Our identity is in Jesus Christ. And because our identity is in Jesus, we were able to not be so nervous when we did our dive. This is the benefits of being a follower of Jesus. Huh. 
You already respected their discipline, but now you knew the motivation for it. So what's our takeaway for this? Well, again, we started this morning by saying, what does it mean for a Christian's life to be the world's Bible? I think there's two applications. One, we need to get into the Word. I want to encourage you this fall, get into the Word. Create a, a, a Bible reading plan. Uh, find a way to say, I'm going to read through the Old Testament. I'm going to read through the New Testament. I'm going to read through the four Gospels. Whatever it is, find a way to dig into the Word this fall. If you're saying, you know what, I, I always start that, but I don't finish it. Maybe you need a discipline to help. Sometimes a small group can do that. If you go to our website, horizoncc.com, we, we had over 800 people in small groups last year. We have men's groups starting. We have women's groups, lots of different women's groups starting. We have discipleship groups starting. Get into a group. Or maybe you say, you know, I need to be equipped on how to put this thing into practice in my family. We're going to be doing family nights for several weeks. But find some mechanism to say, God, I'm going to start to devour your word this fall. And secondly, get into the world. Begin to think about the people you work with, the people you shop with, the people that, that you interact with at those soccer games that you're going to be spending way too much time at, right? Don't think of it as wasted time, just watching your kids and sharing, which we, we love doing. Also think of it as a chance to build relationships and what God might do in the friendships that will be formed to change the world. Get in the Word and get in the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for the reminder of what it means to be your visual aid to a world that's watching and looking for something genuine and something real. Father, we ask this morning that you would just speak in and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Before I let you go today, I do have a sort of an exciting church announcement for you. Uh, I want to invite uh, Doug and Drew to come on up. So for the last uh, two years, many of you know that Drew has been one of our guest speakers. You also know that uh, we've done custom home booklets and honest-to-God booklets. What you may not realize is that everybody thought I wrote it. <laughs> Drew actually has been uh, writing that stuff on behalf of the contractor for us, and we've just had a great friendship that's been formed and putting those things together. And over the last two years, he's been just done a fantastic job transitioning a church up in Rockford to sort of set them up for success. And over those two years, uh, we have invited uh, Drew to be part of our team. So Drew is officially on staff as of this week. So Drew, it is great to have you. Yeah, grab the mic. So we are so excited. He is uh, he's going to be uh, uh, teaching some on the weekends. He's also going to be continuing to put booklets together for spiritual groups. Uh, he's going to be working with a variety of our ministry teams. Uh, doing uh, work both in the Sunday services as well as our equipping ministry in small groups and really taking this idea of digging people into the Word in a powerful way. So we're so excited to have him. Uh, those of you who have heard his message, you know he loves basketball. You know he loves helping parents and teens navigate the world of video games and, and work through how to handle that in the society today. And he loves pe- seeing people grow spiritually. So, Drew, it's great to have you on board, and uh, we'll give you the mic. He, he said if he gets the mic, he gets 30 minutes. I told him he had 30 seconds. So That's we're... what I'm used to, anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, my, my wife and kids are uh, not here this morning, but they are in town, so you'll get to meet them soon, too. You can see Melissa there, and uh, Belle, Obed, Axel, and Simeon, so I know you'll get a chance uh, to meet them, and we're just really thankful to be here. It's been really kind of a, a, uh, say a powerful couple of years for us, and We've learned a lot from being around you guys and being around leaders like Doug and Chad and Marcus and, and others who are in the building here and, and some of the elders. And really, uh, we just feel like God has been teaching us a lot. And so the, a verse that kind of stuck out to me as we thought about coming here and what I might just say to you in 30 seconds was 2 Corinthians 4.15, that the grace 
that is becoming known more and more through many of you abounds to the thanksgiving for the glory of God. And we have seen that happen here, and we believe that it's going to continue to happen here, and our family's just excited to be a part of it. So thank you for, for welcoming us and, and letting us be a part of that. Awesome. I have Doug pray for, uh, for his whole family. And one more time, give him a thanks for being here, and it's been an exciting journey. Let me pray. Father, I want to thank you for what you're doing here at Horizon, and that we get to be a part of it. Uh, thank you for bringing Drew and Melissa to Cincinnati to to join us in this unique mission that you have for us to fulfill here in Cincinnati. May you give Drew the strength and the courage he'll need to embrace the role that you have for him to play. Would you give him wisdom and discernment to respond with your heart of grace and mercy to the multiplicity of situations he will encounter. Also pray protection over his family. His marriage, would you keep he and Melissa strong with one another, enlarge their hearts for one another, at the same time enlarge their hearts for you. Put a hedge of protection around them. And their kids as well, Bell and Axel, Obed and Simeon. And may you continue to expand our influence here at Horizon among leaders in the Cincinnati area And may they discover what we've all discovered, and that is a tender relationship with you and the great adventure of following you in this life. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks again, Drew. Appreciate you all being here today. If you uh, came prepared to give, there's some offering boxes on the way out. If you're new to the church, we'd love to say hi. The third door on your left is the hearth room. If you want to greet uh, Drew, he'll be down here in the front. Thanks again.